911, what's the nature of your emergency? We are live, Mr. Rodney. Good morning, police, fire, military, and families, and to everybody who is listening in on the Tactical Living Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Walton. You might have heard there (laughs) my friend Rodney and I talking a little bit. I love getting to know our guests, and this morning I am super, super excited because this interview is a little bit of a unique one, and the reason for that is because our guest this morning has written a book, and this book is unlike anything that I've ever been exposed to before, and one of the great things about the work that I do and the networking, good morning, and the people that I get to engage with is people are always excited to share their stuff with me, and books just so happen to be something that I think a lot of officers are starting to um, come out with more and more. However, our guest this morning has written a book that is unlike any any book that I have ever read, not just in relation to law enforcement, but any book that I've ever consumed overall in content. <laughs> Good morning, Mr. Bishop. And Rodney, I am so, so happy to have you on our show today. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Good morning to everybody who is tuning in. Now, before we get into the interview, before we get into the book, before we get into the, the meat and potatoes of everything, Rodney is graciously giving away one of his books to somebody in our group. And I thought that one thing that I could do is for the next 24 hours starting now, whoever has the most engagement on this thread is going to be the person who we select to win the book. So I think that will be kind of fun. What does that mean? Yeah. That means that if you have questions, then please type them out. Good morning, good morning. Please type them out and we will make sure that Rodney does his best to answer them. Rodney, if you don't get to any of it, then I'll make sure to tag you on, on everything. And okay. um, without further ado, Rodney, thank you so much for coming on to our show. And if you don't mind, just to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, my name is Rodney Meterspaw. I was the uh, police chief here in Middletown, Ohio, um, which is right by Cincinnati. Uh, and uh, I was the police chief for five years. I was a police officer here in the same city for 30 years. And this is where I live. It's my hometown. A lot of people know the city of uh, Middletown from the, the movie Hillbilly Elegy. Um, the, the author of that is, is from here, and he wrote about Middletown and his life here. And that's kind of the same way I grew up. So it's, uh, it's been a great journey. I retired about a year and a half ago. No regrets. I had a great 30 years. Um, one of the reasons I wrote the book and, uh, was just to come out and try to humanize the position and to show people that law enforcement officers aren't robots. We have mental health issues. We have other issues. Um, that, that dealt from your personal life into professional life. And um, it was actually a journal I kept. I started keeping it when I was in the academy. And uh, after I retired, I had about a thousand pages and some friends of mine and I went through it and decided to, to release it to try to help uh, the profession a little bit because we're taking a beating nationwide. Yeah, and the, the book is called The Blue View. And when you're going through the motions, I remember in the very beginning of your book, you say something like your first line is like, I feel like I'm writing in a freaking diary. And yeah. It really struck me. Um, I know you mentioned this in the book, for, but for anybody who hasn't consumed it yet, what made you start to to journal that and then later turn that into a book? Well, I was in the academy and I had a captain and this was 1989 and uh, I was 20, 21 years old and I had a captain and he was getting ready to retire. And he told the class in the academy, he said, you know, I'm getting ready to leave and I wish I would have kept the book. I'm sorry, he called it a diary. I should have kept the diary of everything I've done on this job so I can go back and look at it and see what I did if I made a difference. And it just always, it struck with me. And, you know, the first couple of years I, I journaled for fun, you know, funny stuff, funny stories. And you read the book, you'll laugh out loud a lot of stuff. But then by the end I was journaling for need for therapy. And 
often joke with with people that I do book club presentations with it. You know, it was either write or drink. Sometimes I did both, but uh, it was the one thing that really helped me cope with the problems of policing and the, and the problems with uh, dealing with the the external stress of it was was journaling. Yeah, Middleton, Ohio, cops rock. All cops rock. I'm guessing that's from Mr. Bishop. Now, when you when you go through your book, the journey of your growth as an officer is incredibly apparent. When when you're just reading your vernacular, how you're presenting things, um, even some of the ways that you you admit in the book, like things that you did or reactions that you had that were a little bit naive, and then that prog- you see that progression within your book. So I'm just wondering after identifying that and that's something that really stuck out to me what was what was some of the progression that you yourself saw as an officer starting as a rookie and then going all the way to police chief empathy empathy was the number one thing when I was younger a younger officer my first few years you know you go out there and you're full of vinegar and and all you want to do is is go out there and chase bad guys and do pursuits and you kind of forget what you're there for sometimes and you're there to help people and I know that sounds cliche but you really, that's what you put in that position for. And at the beginning of my career, I didn't have empathy for anybody. And if you broke a law or you're speeding, whether you're, you know, smoking weed, whatever you're doing, I thought, well, you know, we got, this is a bad person. And, and over time you realize that's not true. Everybody has mistakes. Everybody has faults. And when you find that empathy in your heart and you kind of move on with that, you become a better police officer and a better person. And I think that over time, that was the growth that I had was, was just empathizing with people more and more and putting myself in their shoes on any situation. I think that really is what you have to do as a cop. Beautiful. Good morning to everybody who is just tuning in. Mr. Rodney here, the author of The Blue View, is going to be gifting somebody one of his books. And we decided it would be a little bit fun to make it to where anybody who has the most engagement on this post is the person who's going to win within the next 24 hours. Um, Rodney, it couldn't have been easy to go through such a journey in a city like the one that you worked in. And Mm -hmm. In your book, something else that really stuck out to me is that you're you're pointing out a lot of the flaws in police work. You're pointing out a lot of, yeah, the siren in the background added for effect. I was thinking the same thing. You, you point out a lot of the flaws, not only on the political element of things, but even on the social element of um, even the, the camaraderie and the way that officers treat one another. So I'm just wondering, what are some of the changes that you might have been able to implement yourself or changes that you saw in such a long career? Well, you know, when camaraderie and police, and police departments are huge, it's, it's you're together and you're a bond. And the, my biggest problem with what we do in law enforcement, and, and I believe that the book, book is, is total honesty. When you read it, you'll see I, I beat up myself a lot in that too. And because you can't tell the truth without all the truth. And I think one of the reasons we struggle with police departments um, is we tend to, the first problem we have in policemen is politicians. I'll tell you that right now. They interfere with everything. And they want to they want to create laws that make it hard on us uh, as police officers, but then they want to step back and put their hands up when somebody complains and says, well, that's the police department. But they create these laws that we have to follow, whether it's, whether it's stops or whether it's, you know, profiling things or different things like that. But the camaraderie is what keeps police officers together. The, the biggest problem I have with police officers today, including myself, and we talked about this in my department that I love so much, and I, I still talk to the cops all the time, they're still my people, is we're, we tend to um, only come together when bad things happen. When there's a shooting or a police officer involved in something serious, that's when we need to come together. And police officers around the country need to understand we need to be, get, be, be together all the time, we need to bond all the time because it really has become an us against them world. 
And it's unfortunate that happens, but I really tried to push that with our department. We did a lot of cool stuff and we did stuff outside of police work, whether it was taking everybody to Reds games or cookouts, things like that. You have to do things like that for your people if you're a chief. Also, chiefs, um, I was appointed, which was great. I'm not, I wasn't an elected official. Um, so when they picked me to be the chief and, and I was, I think I was 46 years old and was pretty young for that. You know, I was just coming off being a, a supervisor in charge of detectives and criminal investigation. So I was still kind of one of the guys at the time, but I think just over time, you know, you got to keep that camaraderie going with your officers and you got to let them know that you care about them. Mental health in police departments is horrible right now. And these people, these men and women out there are getting just beat up daily and there's no end in sight. And there's no help in sight. So if you're looking for politicians or chiefs to help you, it's not going to happen. So you got to depend on each other. Man, on that same note, when we're talking about mental health, if we can just pretend for a second, I, I talked to you a little bit about that fake auditorium that I view when I come into my own Facebook group and how important it is to make sure that I'm always treating people like like an actual human being, not just like a profile picture. If we were to take that same approach and you were to give some advice to other departments when it comes to being able to create that type of environment, because things get so disconnected. We all are so busy and we all have the things, but to be able to create that environment that you just described within other police agencies, what advice would you have for somebody to actually take action? If you're a chief or a, or a, or a boss, management by walking around, get out of the office. Stop spending time in the mayor's office, city manager's office, and get out there with your troops. I mean, I would ride, and there's chiefs in Ohio, I give them credit. We we would ride all the time with our officers on second shift, midnights, day shift, whatever. Get in the car with them. Um, going to the detectives every day for the briefing and, and bring them in donuts bring them in cheeseburgers for lunch there's so many things you can do that makes them appreciate that and makes them want to be there and i was proud of the things we did like that but you have to engage with these officers you know you should know unless you're in chicago new york or los angeles you should pretty much know something one thing about every officer in your department every dispatcher every corrections officer one thing you should know something about all of them and take the time to do that and when you don't do that you, you fail as, 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 as a chief, because then you just become another politician and you have to engage your people and you got to be a part of them. And you're still wearing a badge and you're still wearing a gun. You need to be part of them. Not being a chief or a boss doesn't mean that you totally lose that. You don't. But that's one thing we fail at in law enforcement. And I had to remind myself constantly to keep doing that because you do get caught up in the politics of dealing with city council or the city manager. And we did here in Middletown. But you got to you got to engage your people and you got to get to know them. Yeah, beautiful. That's a good idea. I take my journal and write it as a book. Absolutely. It's absolutely brilliant. I was talking to Clint about that last night and he's like, that is such a good idea. Yes, blue versus them for sure. We have to protect our own. Yes, get out of the office. Seems like the momentum is starting to slow down and I hate to see that. Amen. Absolutely. When when we're talking about mental health and I know a lot of the incidents that you you make mention of in the book, The Blue View, is things that are critical, things that despite wanting to leave work at work and home at home, Sometimes that just doesn't happen. So when we, when we have mental health becoming such a prevalent issue, especially as it relates to the increase in police suicides, what advice would you have to officers that are maybe tangled within that same negative momentum? Two things. One thing, never take work home with you, police work. And, and we, we're all horrible for it. I mean, I, my first 10 years in law enforcement, you'd go into my house and you'd see police stuff everywhere because I love being a cop and I, I loved it. But you need to separate work in your home life because you, you'll bring the deaths of children home. You'll bring fights home. You'll bring everything bad home and you take it out on your family. You take it out on your wife, your, your husband, and you need to leave that at work. And I know it sounds it's hard to do, but once you do it, you'll you'll be better for it. 
Um, that's the number one thing I can tell people because I would bring home stuff and I wouldn't talk to my wife for days because I was so preoccupied with a homicide we haven't solved or, you know, I have a, a city council member wanting me to do something to, or fire an officer because they did something. You got to leave that at work, especially in this, this day and age. The second thing is, is seek help. And when I say seek help, confidential help, most departments have EAP, employee assistance programs or things like that. Do not hesitate because in police work, and it's, it's a lot like the military is you tend to think, well, I don't need help. I can get through this. I'm, a, I'm tough. You're not tough. We're, we're tough physically. Mentally, we all need help. And I started seeing a therapist, I think my third year as chief. So it took me 27 years in law enforcement to start seeing a therapist and just talking. And they didn't prescribe me a bunch of stuff. They just, we just talked and it made a world of difference. And um, it's confidential, but get help. And, and y- you don't have to be ashamed of it. And, you know, I had guys on my SWAT teams, toughest guys in the world and some of the baddest women in the world, and they saw therapists too. So you have to get rid of that stigma that we don't need help because you, you do. You see things every day the average person doesn't see, so get help. Beautiful. I have lots of stories to produce the main story of myself. Very true. Um, separate work and home. We all do, though, to separate work and home with the job itself. Yes, mm-hmm. I had PTSI, and I did not know until 2015. So on that note, then, Rodney, and I asked super selfish questions. Go ahead. When, when you mentioned that you waited until three years after becoming police chief, what was that moment for you that led you to to even decide for yourself that, you know what, I, I need to talk to somebody? We uh, we had a homicide of a little boy. I think he was five. And this, you know, middle town, we have a bad a homeless problem. And there's some people that lived out in the woods and they had this little boy and, and he was related to him. And for whatever reason, they took him to a, the Parkway Hotel, which is just a, a nasty place in town. And they ended up beating him to death, rolled him up in a carpet and beating him to death. And our detectives just were, they were stung by it. You can't prepare yourself for that. And I think that's what did it. And then we had um, a homicide in town of a, a beautiful young lady. She was killed on New Year's Eve by gunfire. It wasn't meant for her. Um, and uh, we never got that solved. We know who did it, but the streets, don't like snitches and nobody would talk. And I think that's what did it. I felt like a, a failure as a chief because we couldn't get it done. And I would meet with the parents. I would take, go out to lunch with their parents and talk to them about it and try to tell them we're doing the best we can. And they were very receptive and they were great people. But I think that's what did it. Those two things. I just, I didn't have anybody to talk to about it because you can't go to your subordinates and talk to you about it. So that's, that's a hard thing when you're a chief. Um, and I didn't want to bring it home because that was against my rules of doing that. So that's when I started seeking help. And it, it did help. It really did. Just talking it out. Yeah, for sure. Number one mistake to take your work home with you. I see a therapist three times a week. And you know why, Ashley? Hell has vacancies for these people, for sure. And I think it's incredibly brave to allow yourself to become so vulnerable to open up to somebody in, in that type of situation. And I want to swing around back into the book for a second. There's so many things that come up now that I'm talking to you. I don't, maybe it's your accent or something. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But you, okay. you, you mentioned something that happens all the time and nobody ever talks about it. And it's the fact that when you have people that are the OGs and then they retire, those are the people that you miss the most. And it's heartbreaking to see them leave. And then you never get to see those people again. Maybe you run into them at the store, maybe maybe something, but it's not intentional. There's nothing set in place that's intentional about that. And I'm just wondering now that you've been retired for a year and a half, what, what is it that you're maybe doing or not doing when it comes to still having that type of camaraderie that once meant so much in your career? 
Well, I was pretty close with my, my troops and, and um, probably too close at times. But, uh, you know, about once or twice a week, you'll see a Middletown cruiser in my driveway. They'll stop by and come in and get something to drink. And I love it. And they know that I'm always here for them. Um, but I think the um, it's weird. You know, I, I, I've been gone for a year and a half. And just last week, so funny we're doing this now, was the first time I've been back in that city building since I retired. <laughs> the chief, who's a friend of mine, I promoted him twice um, with the city. Um, he wanted a book copy of the book signed. And then a major that worked for me, he wanted a copy of the book signed. So I, I stopped in and took it in. You just feel like you, you miss everybody, but you feel like, you know, I did 30 years there. And sometimes when you walk back in those doors, it, I think it just brings back bad memories more than good ones, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Um, because you still see the people you want to see, you know, or your text or we do lunch once a month, but to go back in that, that police department was really hard for me. And that's why I didn't do it for a long time. But I think people just leave and they're like, you just feel like you did all you can do and it's time to move on. If that makes any sense at all, it's, it's something internal in you, I guess that you feel like you've done everything you can do and you did your, your time and you served well and you just move on from it. And, uh, but you'll always be a police officer at heart. No matter what, you still sit in a restaurant with your back to the wall. You go to the movie theater. I'm always looking for the exits, you know, the things like that when I got the kids with me. So um, I just think in t- over time, you just you just leave it. Um, you still see who you want to see, but you just don't do it there kind of thing. But no, people, retirees don't come in very much, at least where I'm at. I can tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> Brian says easy Valley girl. I know. I definitely talk like I'm from California. Amen. Brian triggers. It's hard to walk away from the job, but I asked you, I'm not sure what that is. Um, so as we wrap this up, Rodney, I'm just wondering with your experience and not only experience within the department, but I, I know that after having written this book, your outreach is, is growing incredibly. And I think that's a beautiful thing after retirement. So what is it that you, you would hope in terms of being able to to change or to reinforce or to make police work or policing better for the actual police officer in the future? Well, regards to the book and, and the question you just asked, the one thing, like I said, I try to humanize the job. But what was what's the great thing about this to me is I've had diehard liberal activists reach out to me and say they really enjoyed this book. And it gave them a different perspective. Uh, Clarence Page, Chicago Tribune, the guy's won a Pulitzer Prize. He's big time. Um, actually, I'll be there tonight doing a show with him in Cincinnati with him and J.D. Vance from Hillbilly Elegy, an online show. And um, But he's a, he's a Democrat, dire liberal, and he loved it. And the point was he said he saw a compromise. He understands better now of what policing it truly is and what's behind the scenes. And then I've had diehard you know, Republican conservatives love it. So I think the reason they like it is because it's shown them a side of law enforcement they never saw. And a couple activists here in Middletown have told me, they said, you know, I, I, I feel sorry for your officers now. I, I, I Maybe I don't love the police, but now I can understand where they're coming from. And to me, that's important because I, I try to humanize it. And so people who have hated us in the past are reading this and they're saying, you know, I get it. I, I might not like the police because I've had bad experiences, but I get it. And I understand now. And that means the world to me because that makes cops jobs easier across the country. If, some, if diehard activists and, lib- and people who don't like the police can see this, for what it is, then maybe it's, it's better for all the cops in the country, you know, and people take it easy on a little bit. Wow, that's impressive on the liberals. That was exactly what I was thinking. You won't see on CNN or other news outlets. Yes, maybe maybe not yet, Brian, but I, mm-hmm. I would argue, Rodney, that this is 
maybe a completely different venture, a completely different way to go about lessening the stress on officers is, yeah. is really exemplifying that humanity behind the badge. And I yeah. think that it's amazing what you're doing. And I love that the book is taking off the way that it is. And for everybody who is listening, how can somebody purchase one of your books? Um, the best way to do it is simply Amazon right now. Um, it's, uh, on, it's on Amazon, um, Kindle, paperback, and we have it on, it's on Audible, the uh, audiobook, and on iTunes as well. You can go to Amazon.com, just type in the blue view, and it'll come up. It's, um, it's a five-star, which we're just, we can't believe it. There's a couple people who gave bad reviews, but I think it's people I fired or put in prison. <laughs> and that's okay, um, but it's a five-star on Goodreads and Amazon, so we're excited about that. And um, that's how you get it, and if you want it, I mean, just share, spread the word about it, because... I just want cops, people to understand that cops across the country are human. We're human beings and cut them a break sometimes, man. They go through a lot that you don't see. And I think that's what the book shows. Absolutely. And um, one more question. If somebody wants to get a hold of you, maybe they have questions as an officer. Maybe they want to interview you. Maybe they want to, to bring you out and to, to have you come and speak for them. How can somebody get a hold of you directly? E my email is simple. It's mute, M-U-T-E, like my last name is Muterspaw. So it's M-U-T-E 356 at gmail.com. Um, or you can connect with me on Facebook. I pretty much accept everybody on Facebook because of the business I'm in now in real estate. So um, it's just Rodney Muterspaw. You can type that in there and um, you can reach me through Facebook Messenger. Or, or I don't give out my cell phone number for obvious reasons yet, but, um, but those two ways are the best way to reach me. Awesome. Rodney, thank you so much, not only for your incredible, incredible years of service, but also for your continued service and, and what you're doing. I think that the platform you're building, the outreach that you have, and your, your book as kind of the foundation for all of that is just a beautiful thank thing you. in in this industry. So I truly want to thank you for that. And um, that Absolutely. Thank you so much for spending this morning with us. As you guys are watching this, listening to this, watching the replay, make sure that you are commenting, engaging. If you think of questions later, then go ahead and pop them down below and Rodney will make sure to answer them. Everybody have a really good day. And we're going to end on that note with those sirens in the background. <laughs> Perfect on cue. <laughs> Thank you, Rodney.